ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon, Selena Green bringing you The Country Hour today. Well, the vast majority of Australian wool is being exported offshore. Is it time to look at starting domestic manufacturing again? We're going to have a look at that in a moment. And let me know your thoughts. one three hundred triple two eight nine one. That's my talkback number today. Or the text line 0467 922891. Also coming up in this next half an hour, how much homework has the state government done into how water buybacks could affect basin communities? Not only have we uh, done our homework, but we have an entire Royal Commission backing the idea that voluntary sale of water needs to be part of the answer in getting enough water for the environment. There's more on that to come as well. But first today, Australian farmers export 80% of their wool for processing in China. Could the industry wind back the clock and restart domestic manufacturing? A new Commonwealth-funded report has looked at a business case for early-stage processing in Australia and it's earmarked three potential locations. Adam Dawes is the General Manager at Wool Producers Australia and he told reporter Josh Becker there is a good case for diversifying the wool supply chain. Yeah, I think, Josh, there's an obvious need for um, increased diversification of wool processing. As listeners would be aware, the vast majority of our wool trending around about 80% of the wool that we produce currently all goes to China for processing. 50% of that is retained in China through until the point of retail consumption and the other 50% is exported to third countries either as final products or intermediate wool products. And with that market concentration and that reliance on a single market, there's some obvious trade risks that come about. So diversification of trade would be a good thing for the Australian wool industry, be that domestic processing to diversified countries or sending greasy wool or potentially scoured wool to diversified food countries would also be a good thing. Wool growers have often raised concerns about the over-reliance on one main buyer for Australian wool, but some other analysts have argued that it's actually a symbiotic relationship where China is reliant as well on Australia to keep those mills running. And that's one of the key reasons that some say that it wasn't targeted like wine and barley were with tariffs. Do you see any merit to that kind of argument? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we certainly acknowledge that the the relationship that we've got with the Chinese wool processes is an extremely valuable one and it will continue to be valuable in the future. I think we need to try and ensure that we, I guess, uh, achieve supply chain diversification as we see growing demand for the wool fibre. And I think that growing demand and the capacity that will serve that demand can be established in potential growth markets like India, Bangladesh and Vietnam that have also been assessed as part of this work. You've commissioned this significant report from Deloitte um, where it looks at some potential opportunities for the industry to look at early stage wool processing. Uh, What did it find? What this piece of work has now looked to do is to really develop some roadmaps and some tangible pathways of how we can implement that domestic and diversified processing. So now the the findings of this report and the really um, 
I think it's evidenced by the reports. There's quite a bit of work that's been done. Now needs to be taken back into the industry representative groups to work on how we pursue the delivery of that trade risk mitigation on behalf of the broader Australian wool industry and particularly Australian growers. And, and largely the locations that were assessed were logically locations that have previously processed wool. So Australia processed a lot of the wool that we grew to some extent up until the 1990s, at which time it started to get offshored due to cost of processing and it followed lower cost processing markets. What we came up with after that multi-criteria assessment and the risk assessment was the preferred locations to look at going forward would be a Metro Vic or a uh, Riverina New South Wales or potentially a, a South Australian um, green triangle type option. As I understand it, Metro, Metropolitan Victoria was the, the number one choice on the list? Yeah, that was the one that stacked up most most strongly. I think the other thing that we need to recognise in terms of Metro Vic being the preferred location, there's just such such an aggregation of wools of different types and options for procuring wools for a processing facility in Melbourne. So that's that provides a distinct advantage over, say, a regional location. It's not to say that, you know, an investor might have other criteria that weren't taken into account that might favour another location or perhaps a location that wasn't even considered. Have you crunched the numbers on the business case and, and whether it makes sense? Yeah, look, I think, Josh, it's got to be looked at from the perspective of an investor that's floating around with, you know, the tens of millions of dollars of capital investment that a project like this would require. Um, if they're looking to park their money somewhere, uh, early stage wool processing probably doesn't quite stack up. But the business case that really needs to be put to government is there is a real case for some support to assist with the capital investment, be that through mechanisms like the National Reconstruction Fund is one that really came to the top. That might help to make the commercial business case more feasible. And I think, you know, what we really need to emphasise to government is that if Australia had the ability to process or export 50% of the wool that we grow to diversified markets, that reduces our level of trade risk exposure by about $1.1 billion per annum. That's in the case of a foot and mouth disease outbreak. So there's some real economy-wide benefits that are not necessarily in the direct commercial interests of a private investor, but the Australian government could invest in, um, in that economy-wide risk mitigation. As Adam Dawes speaking there, he's the General Manager at Wool Producers Australia, ending that report from Josh Becker. It's 11 minutes past 12. What concerns do you have about buybacks, water buybacks, and how they could affect basin communities? Well, the state opposition agriculture spokesperson, Nicola Centafani, has accused the SA government of not doing their homework before accepting the federal government's plan on voluntary buybacks. You'll hear from the state government in just a sec, but Nicola Centafani told Stephanie Nitschke that the government have followed their politics rather than policy on this issue. Well, look, Steph, it seems that way with this current Labor government. Um, you know, they have blindly followed their federal colleagues and um, Minister Close uh, and uh, Peter Malinowskis have signed up uh, to an agreement to achieve the 450 gigalitres by uh, buybacks, uh, water buybacks, that is. So uh, they've signed up to this agreement without doing the homework. And I think uh, now the Premier has to explain to regional South Australia why he has allowed this to occur uh, and why he hasn't done, he and his ministers haven't done the homework to ensure that 
mass buybacks don't have a detrimental effect on the regional communities here in our state. So what are Riverland growers telling you about how they feel? Because we do know there's people out there who do want to sell. Yeah, look, Steph, I think the message that's really getting through to me um, is that there are sellers, but uh, they're not what you'd call typical willing sellers. We all know um, the issues that the the wine grape industry are going through at the moment, uh, and many uh, farmers and producers are telling me that actually they're not willing sellers, they're desperate sellers. Um, You know, they're they're needing to sell uh, to pay their bills. And so, you know, I think this whole concept of being a a willing seller is really a farce. Producers and and farmers uh, and growers are certainly anxious right about now. And, you know, I think they need some certainty and it's up to the South Australian government to provide that certainty. That is the state opposition's agriculture spokesperson, Nicola Centafanti, speaking with Stephanie Nitschke. Well, State Water Minister Susan Close has defended her government's work on buybacks. She told Laura Wellington that they've not only done their homework, but they had the backing of a royal commission. Uh, well, yes, not only have we uh, done our homework, but we have an entire royal commission backing the idea that voluntary sale of water needs to be part of the answer in getting enough water for the environment. You opened this uh, section talking about the river being the lifeblood of the Riverland. That is so true. In fact, it's the lifeblood of South Australia. And what we cannot afford is for it to run dry. Nothing would ruin the irrigator communities like a drought where there isn't enough water that's been managed to keep the environment going because the environment is the health of the river. So we've all agreed in South Australia, at least until Nicola Centrofanti came into politics, we all agreed that the Murray-Darling Basin Plan was something that was necessary and that we wanted to see happen. And unfortunately, the last 450 gigalitres of that, the 450 that were the reason that South Australia signed up with the support of everybody across the state... That has not been delivered. The alternatives, and and this is always the question, if you don't want us to do this, what do you want us to do? The alternatives were in the hands of the Liberal government in Canberra for nine years, and we got two gigalitres in that period, and we're now at 12 gigalitres to 450. So we know we need to do something. We had a Royal Commission that looked at all of the issues associated with the plan. It was very clear that buying back needs to be part of this, as too does any adjustment, assistance and support for communities should there be a negative impact. And those are both parts of what the federal government is doing. So what we've been doing in the South Australian government on behalf of all South Australians is working with the Primary Industries Department and the Water Department with the community on the way in which that project ought to be designed so that we can give a contribution to the federal government. They're they're the ones doing the buying, we're not. So give it to the federal government to say, this is what we believe are the issues that we can see in South Australia. So when you're designing this program, please make sure you do it in the best possible way for our communities because although we are ultimately the beneficiaries of that water coming down, we also need to do this in the smartest way possible and allow people who want to sell and even, as you've pointed out, who are desperate to sell to do so. Fancy someone who says that they support irrigators denying people the right to be able to sell their water. On that, um, willing versus desperate, where do you sit on desperate being people selling and they actually don't want to versus people coming and saying, yes, I'm ready to sell, you know, maybe I'm retiring from my block and I'm moving on? 
What often happens, of course, is that, um, and, and this is one of the features that we'd like to see in the program, is that not all of the water is sold, so that uh, people sell some of their water allocation and, all, and then will reinvest in their community, including in ways of operating more efficiently or diversifying their business so that the productivity of the area is maintained. But look, when, when you're desperate to sell because uh, there is a crisis outside of anything to do with the River Murray in your industry, which is the case for, for wine, then why would you not want the, the government to be part of the answer in buying some of that water? Why, why would you deny that as being an option? Now, we know that there are people in that, that situation. We also know that there are people who, who could sell their water to anybody but want to sell it for the environment because they'd like to see their grandchildren continuing to be able to make a living from this healthy work, working basin. Because make no mistake, it won't be a healthy working basin if we don't deliver the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. It's not optional, it's not discretionary, it's not something that politicians have dreamt up. It is something that is utterly necessary, and we all agreed to that. We all signed up, we all said we wanted the plan, and this is one of the paths. It's not the only path. There are other ways in which we will be get, uh, we, we're putting pressure on the federal government to deliver the water. But it, it, uh, more than half of the water that's already been recovered by the Murray-Darling Basin Authority has been done through voluntary sales. So mm. it's not brand new. It's not something that hasn't happened before, and it's certainly something that works. That is the state's water minister, Susan Close, and she was speaking there to Laura Wellington. It's 18 minutes past 12 here on The Country Hour. You're with Selena Green today. Well, the McKillop Farm Management Group has a brand new CEO. Previous communications and events officer of the group, Sally Close, has taken over the position from Meg Bell this week. Ms Close says she is excited to take on the challenge and hopefully grow the organisation. So I'm very excited to be starting as the new CEO for the McKillop Farm Management Group. Looking forward to working with our members, uh, growing the membership base and just continuing the good work that the group's been doing in delivering events to farmers across the limestone coast. Yes, so do you have any particular big plans for the group now you're in charge? Uh, No big plans. I'm following on from an excellent CEO, Meg Bell, so it will uh, more be about executing and just continuing to deliver the projects that we've got underway. Um, The Michelet Group has got quite a large portfolio of projects that that we're already committed to that we'll continue to deliver. And what about any uh, new, newer projects on the horizon? Is there anything planned with that? Or have you been hearing anything from your members that you might want to focus on that, that's new? Yes, yeah, so we always do a, um, a planning day at the beginning of the year, which they, they did last Thursday. So there'll be a lot of actions for us to follow up from that um, in terms of projects. But what we always try and do is align our projects to the major bodies in farming like the GRDC and MLA, so ensuring that we align projects to their key outcomes. It is a bit of an interesting time for ag at the moment. No one seems to be real sure what the weather's up to and kind of unknown conditions going in and coming off a, a pretty tough year for some farmers. Will the group be able to you know, do any new projects on that or helping members in that way? What our members are always focused on is driving productivity. So we're looking at expanding on our hyper-yielding crop project, which will, uh, you know, look at how can we improve and maximise return on investment for farmers and how can we increase and improve productivity. But then also uh, we've got a 
an event this year where we'll be looking at foot health for sheep. So how can we um, support farmers to undertake those preventative actions as well? So it's really about responding to whatever the need is at the time we're going to. We did a really successful carbon workshop uh, last year, so we'll be look, do, looking at doing another carbon workshop. So sort of tackling those those big issues that are front of mind for farmers. And you said you'd like to continue to grow the group. Is membership still strong at the moment? You're just hoping to, you know, get it even bigger? Yeah, so the membership's really strong. Obviously, there's always uh, ways we can engage with more farmers. Our sponsorship base is really strong as well. So just um, continuing to build those relationships and maintain those relationships with the farmers and um, agribusiness and sponsors within the region. That is the McKillop Farm Management Group's new CEO, Sally Coase, and she was speaking there to Elsie Adamo. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, being a Wednesday, it is time to head to the markets now. We have the Dublin sheep and cattle sale results being brought to you today by Elsie Adamo. Hi, Elsie. Good afternoon, Selena. Numbers increased again this week as agents offered 8,500 lambs and 2,500 sheep. The usual trade and processor buyers, specialty butchers and restockers provided good competition throughout the sale. Quality was extremely mixed as two score merinos were again offered in large numbers. Prices in early sales were generally firm for the better conditioned lambs. However, prices eased across most weights and grades as the sale progressed, with extremely heavy weights most affected. Light and medium weight trade weight lambs sold marginally dearer as store lambs again sold to erratic competition. Extremely light lambs sold from $28 to $118 as light weights returned $100 to $147. Light trade weights ranged from $70 to $150 as medium weights sold from $160 to $171 with heavy weights selling from $170 to $215. Extreme heavy weights sold from $184 to $140. Per head. Hoggett sold from $55 to $102 per head. Light use ranged from $23 to $50 as medium weights sold from $34 to $78 with heavy weights making $75 to $40 per head. Heavy weather sold from $85 to $100 per head with the rams selling from $10 to $82 per head. Meanwhile, in the cattle market, numbers increased marginally as agents offered 285 live weight and open auction cattle. Quality was generally fair to good and with the additional processor buyer now looking like a permanent competitor, competition was good from the now usual buying group, specialty butchers and restockers. Prices remained generally firm across the offering for type and condition. Vila steers sold from 290 to 330 cents, as Vila heifers ranged from 256 cents to 302 cents. Yearling steers made from 186 to 228 cents, as heifers sold from 218 to 312 cents. Manufacturing steers sold from 270 to 318 cents, as grown steers sold from 270 to 328 cents, with grown heifers selling from 220 cents to 318 cents. Light cows sold from 176 cents, with heavy cow selling from 220 to 288 cents, bull sold from 204 to 310 cents per kilogram. This has been Elsie Adamo filling in for John Traeger for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks, Elsie, and thanks to John as well for those figures. Unfortunately, I'm unable to bring you the results from the Mount Gambier sale today. It is 24 minutes past 12 here on the South Australian Country Hour with Selena Green, and it's time to head to the Weather Bureau now. Jenny Horvat is our forecaster today. Hello, Jenny, and happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday, Selena. Thanks for having me. What's going on with the weather? 
Oh, look, it remains pretty stable across the southern parts of the, the state. We've got that high-pressure system sitting south of the bite, maintaining that milder south-to-south-easterly airstream. Can't expect that to get a little bit fresh and gusty, especially around the, the coast as we head into this afternoon with those sea breezes, and we do have that strong wind warning out for the Spencer Gulf and Gulf St Vincent for today and tomorrow. Further north, um, we had that upper trough yesterday producing quite a lot of thunderstorm activity across the northeast pastoral district. Um, not too much in the gauges though. We don't have too many up there anyway. Unadada um, recording up to 1.8 millimetres um, till 9am this morning and Moomba 1 millimetre. Little bit of cloud still hanging up around near the NT border. Couldn't rule out a little bit of shower activity. Looks like the thunderstorm activity will be confined to the Northern Territory side of the border but we couldn't rule it up up near that border this afternoon. We will see those um, showers and storms contracting um, north during the course of the day so we are expecting a dry day throughout the state on Thursday. Got that high pressure system still lingering just south of the bite there maintaining that milder south southeasterly airstream again and again we could be expecting to see a little bit of fresh and gustiness um, with those winds, especially around um, the coasts again in the afternoon on Thursday. And again, remaining pretty steady with that high pressure system up until the weekend and over the over the weekend. Um, but as that high pressure system does start to move um, off into the Tasman Sea later in the weekend and early next week, we'll see those winds um, gradually shifting from that southeasterly to more easterly, northeasterly wind direction. And a result of that, we will be seeing those temperatures rising as we head into early next week ahead of a change possibly moving through either Tuesday or Wednesday which will be a little bit of a watch this space regarding how that change develops and whether we start to pick up a little bit of um, moisture with that but um, quite a bit of uncertainty at this stage. Um, up in the north though again on, up from around Friday there's a bit of a trough that's going to be lingering over um, Queensland so we could start to see a little bit of um, shower and thunderstorm activity returning back to the far northeast on Friday lingering um, there over the weekend for Saturday and Sunday again expecting to see some shower and thunderstorm activity up there in that northeast corner. On Monday maybe we'll see a bit more of a progression with that shower and thunderstorm risk maybe moving a little bit more broadly across the northeast pastoral district on Monday and then as we look um, forward to around sort of Tuesday and Wednesday again a little bit more of a, a watch this space whether we start to see that moisture coming south along those eastern border districts and maybe like I said interacting with a change moving through so um, at this stage not looking too bad um, but it will be a bit of a, a watch this space whether we pick up a little bit of extra moisture with those showers and thunderstorms and depending on whether they stay up in the north or whether we can see them coming down a little bit further to the south um, but as a result for the next few days we're not expecting too much rainfall up until the end of Sunday so we could see a little bit of um, falls today up in that far north but really not expecting too much there today dry day throughout on Thursday and then um, as we head into Friday and for the weekend up in that northeast corner we are possibly expecting to see um, five millimetres probably less than but we could see some local falls with those thunderstorms of up to around five to fifteen millimetres up through up through there in that northeast corner with that moisture coming through. The other thing of note is we do have that flood warning for all those inland rivers so we did see quite a lot of rainfall up there um, 
um, and we do have flooding occurring across the Cooper Creek at Inga Inaminka, so the causeway is impassable. And the other factor is we have also got that water that's up in Queensland as a result of that rain that will be feeding in slowly down over the next few weeks. So we expect that flooding to be maintained going forward there, Selena. All right. Thanks for that, Jenny. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Jenny Horvat there from the Weather Bureau. The forecast for the western inland parts of New South Wales for tomorrow, the upper western district, a partly cloudy day with a high chance of showers in the east, a slight chance elsewhere, and there's a chance of a thunderstorm. For the lower western district, partly cloudy also. There's a medium chance of showers in the far east in the afternoon and evening, but a near zero chance of rain elsewhere, and there is a chance of a thunderstorm in the far east of the lower western district as well. Overnight temperatures for both districts, they'll get down somewhere between mid-teens to around 20 degrees during the day. You can expect those temperatures somewhere between 27 and 35 degrees. It's coming up to half past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Good afternoon. Well, often after major weather events, we do hear a lot about the flow-on impact on our grocery shelves, which foods will be in shorter supply and more expensive as a result. But it's not just something that impacts supermarkets and consumers. It's also hurting food charities like Food Bank. You'll hear more on that is to come very shortly. Also today, imagine moving to a town population three. Yes, just three. And opening up a pub, despite having never run one before. You'll meet some folks who did exactly that. You know, we don't have the five or eight million dollars for a sheep station, so we'll start off on a slightly smaller but probably busier scale. My talkback number today, if you want to get in touch, is 1300 222 891, or you can send me a text on 0467 922 891. Now, do news headlines with Chris McLaughlin. Good afternoon. Hello, Selena. West Australian resource business Woodside says it ceased discussions with Santos regarding a potential merger. The preliminary talks were confirmed in December. In a market announcement, Woodside's Chief Executive Officer Meg O'Neill says discussions with Santos, which has its headquarters in Adelaide, did not result in a transaction. Proposed laws to ban political parties from erecting election core flutes on public infrastructure are set to pass South Australia's lower house. If they pass the upper house, they take effect before the by-election in former Premier Stephen Marshall's seat of Dunstan. A woman who tipped off her public service bosses to an anti-corruption investigation in 2018 has been issued a $1,000 fine. Stephanie Hardy pleaded guilty to unlawfully disclosing information about an ICAC investigation into former Renewal SA executives John Hanlon and Georgina Vasilevsky. Another two High Court challenges over the Commonwealth's use of ankle bracelets and curfews to monitor people released from immigration detention have been formally scrapped. Last year, the federal government imposed the conditions on people released into the community after a High Court ruling that indefinite immigration detention Attention was unlawful. More ABC News at one o'clock. Thank you, Chris, for those headlines. 
Well, first today, the state opposition is arguing for landholders to have more rights to opt out of the state's aerial deer culling program. Landholder rights have emerged as a key issue out of the debate over the culling program. It's been using aircraft to eradicate the estimated 40,000 feral deer across South Australia within a decade. As you may have heard on the program earlier this week, hunters held a forum in the state's southeast over the weekend to raise their concerns over how that program is run. Yesterday, I had the state ag minister on the country to respond to those concerns and she questioned the opposition's commitment to the culling program. Joining me today is the leader of the opposition in the Legislative Council, Nicola Santafani, who is speaking on this in Parliament later today. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Lena. Thanks for having me. Well, firstly, let's clarify on the issue of the actual deer, aerial deer culling program itself. Where do you stand on it? Are you in support of the program? Yeah, and Selena, look, let me be absolutely clear. I've been on um, the ABC and lots of other media channels time and time again throwing my support behind feral animal control and I unequivocally support the feral deer culling program. You know, I've always supported the management of invasive species, not only because of the negative impact on production uh, and on the environment, but because they present a huge biosecurity risk. But, Selena, that is not what this conversation is about. Uh, you know, this is about uh, landowners' rights and choices. And I attend a community forum in Narracourt uh, over the weekend where over 300 residents expressed their dismay over the government's heavy-handed approach to the feral deer culling program. And these communities are by no means against controlling deer numbers, nor are they against the use of aerial culling as part of a range of tools to make sure... Uh, that feral deer numbers are controlled. Uh, But what they are against is being forced to take part in the aerial culling program and being forced out of their properties for days at a time, you know, sometimes up to 10 days to two weeks, uh, and being forced to sign agreements which stipulate that they're liable for any other person or the public entering their properties uh, during this time. And they're also being told that they will have to foot the bill if they uh, don't comply Uh, with these orders. So, um, Selena, these reports are incredibly disturbing because, you know, as communities, we should all be working together on this issue. And, you know, it it should be similar, uh, I think, to the fruit fly program that we have running in the Riverlands uh, currently here in South Australia. You know, there are some landowners who, for particular reasons, uh, cannot or do not want to take part in the spraying and baiting program. But uh, PERSA generally works with those people to do what they can Uh, when they can. And that gives uh, not only growers, but it gives the community uh, confidence in that program. So how do you see this program working in a way that could address those concerns of those landholders? And there are uh, ways for people to apply apply for exemptions at the moment. That's through ministerial discretion from my understanding. But would you be supportive of of an opt-in or opt-out program? Uh, Look, absolutely, Celine. I mean, aerial culling is only one tool in the toolbox and it shouldn't be used in isolation for the control of feral deer populations. Uh, It should be used alongside and as a complement to other measures, you know, such as the use of commercial, professional and recreational uh, hunters. Uh, And it should be the landowner's choice as to which tools they use to manage the deer numbers on their property because, you know, as a Liberal, I believe uh, in individual choice and, you know, we will always seek to protect Uh, property rights, that it is the right to do what you choose with your property here in South Australia. Selena, can I just make the point as well, I'm yet to meet a farmer who has had their alternative action plan approved. 
Um, from what I've heard from landowners is that if the alternative plan doesn't involve aerial culling, it gets rejected. Uh, and there are many tools that we can and should be using to control feral deer populations. And, you know, success and practical outcomes occur when communities, individuals and governments collaborate and work together to achieve those outcomes. It doesn't occur when government uses its big stick to wield power over individuals and communities. And it certainly doesn't occur when people feel that their basic rights and freedoms are taken away. And so I'm urging the current government to reassess uh, their heavy-handed tactics and, you know, rather than taking a big-stick approach, really work with individual landowners uh, to use a range of tools to control feral deer uh, rather than uh, a blanket one-size-fits-all approach. Because, you know, if they don't, Selena, they will absolutely risk losing the community uh, on this incredibly important program when it comes to uh, feral deer culling in this state. If the ultimate goal is eradication of feral deer across the state, can a program be effective in in that goal if you have landowners opting out of aerial culling? So there's there's no one way, uh, one tool uh, when it comes to feral deer culling. So I absolutely think that a a program can be successful uh, with the range of tools that we're using in that tool kit. And, you know, again, it's about getting the community on board. Um, There are many farmers um, that uh, are signing up to aerial culling, and that's fantastic. But for those farmers uh, and landowners uh, that don't want to sign up to aerial culling, uh, they absolutely, uh, so long as they're controlling deer numbers and culling deer numbers on their property, should be able to use other uh, methods and other tools. Nicholas Senefani, while we have you, I understand uh, this week in Parliament you did also ask uh, a number of questions of the Ag Minister around some unexplained bee deaths in, in the Riverland. Uh, just give us an idea of the, the response you received. Has that satisfied your concerns or, or are you pushing for an inquiry into this? Selena, uh, unfortunately the Minister's um, responses uh, didn't satisfy uh, my concerns and uh, I asked the Minister outright uh, whether she would support uh, an independent, that is independent uh, of the department uh, review uh, into uh, the bee death deaths in the Riverland. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, she wouldn't uh, commit to that. Um, uh, and, um, you know, that's incredibly disappointing. So I'll be continuing to push for her to uh, hold that independent review because I think there are a lot of apiarists out there in the Riverland uh, who had significant concerns. Nicola Sedefani, thanks for joining us on The Country Hour today. Thanks for having me. That is the opposition spokesperson for Primary Industries, Nicola Sedefani, and it is 21 minutes to one here on The Country Hour. Well, the value of Australia's horticultural production went up last year despite major flooding at the end of 2022 and a huge drop in the value of almonds, which is Australia's most valuable horticultural export. This is all according to the annual statistics handbook released today by Horticulture Research and Development Group Hort Innovation. Hort Innovation's Industry Insights uh, Distributor Manager Lucy Noble says the industry has grown remarkably despite some big setbacks. 
essentially we're seeing some really optimistic growth across the entire horticulture industry. The overall value of the industry has gone up 2.8% to reach $16.25 billion. And we're seeing some really optimistic um, and positive signs, particularly for a lot of our fruit lines, where we've seen the value of the industry grow remarkably, and particularly for some of those Victorian categories around table grapes. And then also further up north in avocados, we've also seen some really optimistic growth We've seen some good encouraging signs within the vegetable industry as well, which is quite a mainstay in Victoria. Um, so generally speaking, we're seeing some good signs, but that's not to say that it hasn't been a challenging year for a lot of our growers. This report covers the 2023 financial year, which of course includes those massive floods that we had at the end of 2022. It was interesting to see the overall value of vegetable production went up despite that. Could you talk me through that a little bit? So we've seen in the last, in FY23, we've seen vegetable value come up 5.4%. And optimistically, that growth has come across quite broadly the entire vegetable category. Um, There has been some kind of drivers of growth, but generally speaking, we're just seeing some solid growth across a lot of a lot of the vegetable lines. I think an important one within the vegetable one to take note of is that we're still seeing that volume share come down. So volume came down nearly 3% in FY23, which is in recognition of the fact that it's still a lot of our East Coast growers in particular within vegetables are still looking to regroup and recover from essentially the last two or three years of floods that have really affected those lines. And so we're still seeing that kind of stabilisation of supply and demand so the value is going up, the volume's gone down. Does that mean that farmers mm-hmm. have gotten a bit more money in their pockets over the last 12 months? If only it was as simple as that. No, that doesn't. that's not necessarily the case um, at all and that's not what we're seeing. But what we are seeing is that obviously quite basic supply-demand principles is that as demand or as supply sorry, is diminished, we are seeing that price come up for the commodities that are, that are making it to market. And when we're seeing volume recover in some of the industries, but it is actually just a few vegetable lines in particular that have been badly affected by um, by the recuperating of volumes. So it's just a few of the a few of the industries in particular where volume hasn't recovered to the same extent. And which industries were the most affected by the floods? We're seeing it we're seeing large dips in volume, particularly within within vegetables from tomatoes. So that was down 120,000 tonnes, which was actually was the difference between the production volumes of 2022 to 2023. So that was the primary driver of volumes within the vegetable lines coming back. We're seeing it also within onions. We saw volumes come back for some of the smaller categories as well, which when they are smaller categories and the overall production is less, it can have a large difference. So for things like asparagus, for cabbage, for carrots as well, we're seeing volumes come back across the board for those categories as well within vegetable lines. And turning to nuts now, nuts have been a bit of a loser in this this particular report. There's been a huge decrease in particularly the value of nuts over the last 12 months and also a bit of a drop in the volume. Can you talk me through what's been behind that? Yeah, you're right. In terms of a, a standout of performance, and where we're seeing value value really come back this year was in the nut lines, as you said, value came back 42% on the prior year. <clears throat> and that is being driven by largely by almonds and macadamias, but we're seeing value come back for almost all the nut lines um, apart from hazelnuts. And the reason for this is it's a complex, so a little bit of a complex answer, Elsie, but it kind of comes back to the at the moment the global supply of um, nuts over the last year has really increased. And so it's where we're seeing changes in the export opportunities for nuts um, and the value is coming back somewhat there. Australia's most valuable horticultural export is is almonds. So 
a big drop in that one commodity could have a big impact, couldn't it? That's Yeah, that's that's completely correct. And I think one thing to take note of is the fact that we have seen quite a significant drop in value of those nut lines, but we've also seen a really significant growth in those industries. And as you said, in the almond industry, we've seen the value of exports in almonds grow by 200, 300% over the last 10 years. And so there has been a significant growth in those lines, but that's not to take away from the fact that, as you said, it is really, it's a large comeback on the last few years of performance in particular. Mm. That was Hort Innovations Industry Insights Manager Lucy Noble and she was speaking speaking there to Elsie Kennedy. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. And you're with Selena Green on this Wednesday. Well, weather events in Australia are having significant impacts on supply food chains and it isn't just supermarkets and consumers that rely on our growers and producers, but not-for-profit organisations as well. The Chief Operating Officer for Food Bank Australia, Sarah Pennell, says weather events are having a significant impact on their food supply. Well, it's a mixed bag for us at Food Bank and, and in terms of the food relief sector generally, because in some instances it is a challenge for us. We aren't you know, able to access food in the way that we normally can and often you know there's a requirement to get food to places that we're not normally reaching out to and there's the logistics there so in terms of disasters there's so much for us to be thinking about uh, can we get the the explicit food and, and stocks that are needed in times of disaster and can we get them to where they are needed you know we're subject to exactly the same access issues that anybody else is with regard to, you know, an area that's been flooded or had bushfires or whatever. So all of that is something we have to think about when it's, it comes to, you know, meeting the demand. But on the flip side, supply chain disruption that is, is caused by disaster events can sometimes provide windfalls for us. So where a, a supply chain is being disrupted by a flood, for instance, it might mean that stock that was intended to go from the east coast to the west coast or vice versa can't, and therefore it's made available to us. So we've had a number of instances uh, in recent times, the flooding in South Australia that caused disruption to the road and rail link to the west actually meant food was made available to us on the east coast that was never going to make it over to the west in time. So it's a mixed bag and the issue for Food Bank is being flexible and being able to respond to these unexpected events. Often in times of disaster, we need to be very light on our feet when it comes to knowing what to do. And are these type of events something that you've noticed Food Bank is having to deal with more commonly, not even just the extreme weather events, but one-off storms can significantly impact the amount of produce available? Absolutely. It's impacting in one way, shape or form on an ongoing basis now. So we're, we're aware that, you know, particular fresh produce may be in short supply or may be in abundant supply because of various weather events. And we need to be able to cater for that and, and respond appropriately. What we saw during COVID was a relaxation in the quality specifications for fresh produce so that supermarkets could keep product on shelf. That had a negative impact for us because that stock that normally was unacceptable for sale would come to us, but now it was going to sale. So as I say, it's just such a complex issue 
and how we might be affected in any, any given situation is often a surprise. Yeah, so is that a bit of a concern really for Food Bank going into the future? Absolutely. We need to be uh, able to cope with something that's just going to become so variable and that means we have to have the logistics capacity to, to respond to any situation, both effectively and quickly. And are there any type of produce or crops in particular that you've seen have problems with more commonly than others? Not really that I can comment on. The impact has been across the board, be it bushfires in Tasmania through to flooding on the east coast in New South Wales and Queensland. There has been impact on supply chains in all those instances. So that's what I mean by saying it's broad ranging and something that's when we're looking at a national picture, is is happening all the time somewhere. Obviously, this is a complex issue and Food Bank doesn't you know, grow the produce themselves. But when it comes to precision farming and, and farmers wanting to just grow exactly to contract, do you think that's really the best way to go about it at the moment with what's been happening in the environment? Look, I, I, I can't comment on, on what that might mean for the farmers. I mean, I'm, I'm all for farmers innovating and doing what enables them to, you know, meet the needs and be able to make a living. And that's always a big challenge for farmers. They have a lot to contend with. I think we're a long way off from farming becoming such a precision exercise that there is no surplus. I think nature will have something to say about that for a long time to come. But I do, I do think even in terms of food relief, we're changing as well. So we absolutely want to redirect surplus food, but increasingly we're looking to proactively source the food that we need for food relief. And we're working with uh, producers and manufacturers now, not just waiting for when they have waste or surplus, but actually sourcing what we need to provide in the form of food relief. Uh, One example would be if we were simply waiting for, say, rice or tea bags to become available via food rescue, we'd be waiting a very long time because these are extremely efficient supply chains. So we need both of those things in order to be able to provide uh, food relief. So we're we're doing more and more uh, working and collaborating with the industry and with growers to source what we need for food relief. It's less and less just a kind of food rescue proposition. That's the Chief Operating Officer for Food Bank Australia, Sarah Pennell, and she's speaking with Elsie Adamo. And you can go and read more on this right now on the ABC Rural website, abc.net.au forward slash rural. Well, the former competition regulator boss, Alan Fells, says there's much more the government can do to rein in business businesses, price gouging and unfair pricing practices. He's been commissioned by union ACTU to look at the issue and today released his report at the National Press Club. The cause is weak and ineffective competition in too many sectors of the economy. Two policies are needed. First, the Australian government needs to act on high prices to investigate their nature and causes and, where possible, their remedies. The remedies don't include price controls, but there is much that governments can do. Secondly, greatly strengthen competition policy to remove or weaken market power which enables the excessive prices to be charged. 
So the focus is on the effects of prices on ordinary people, on workers, on uh, farmers, uh, on poor and disadvantaged people. In my report, I refer to prices going up quicker than they fall. Petrol is a well-known example. Goes up fast, falls slowly. This is sometimes called the rocket and feathers effect. When costs rise, business prices rise fast, like a rocket. When costs fall, business prices fall slowly to the ground, like a feather. It's very profitable to delay price falls. A recent example, well known, concerns meat. Now, as inflation starts to fall, I'm concerned there may be a rockets and feathers effect on prices. We want business to play its role. Having played a role in getting prices up, we want it to play a role in getting them down like rockets, not feathers. That is the former ACCC chairman, Professor Alan Fells. That's a little bit of his speech to the National Press Club today, which is still underway as we speak. Uh, he's talking about his findings into price gouging and unfair pricing policies. So no doubt you'll hear a bit more about this across the ABC throughout the day. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, finally today, would you make the move to a town of population just three? Yes, three people and open the pub back up again? Well, based 120 kilometres west of Broken Hill, the O'Leary Hotel doors opened at the end of January. It's the new venture for first-time publicans, Aaron and Amber Crowley. Lily McEwer spoke with Aaron and Amber about how the transition into the O'Leary community has been for them. We pretty much still living out of cardboard boxes, just, you know, hotel a priority. Fitting in that, you know, finding the items that we, you know, can live our own personal lives still, but looking after the hotel and the locals, and then at the same time organising school, remote schooling, boarding school for the two that live with us. It's also been an interesting part of the process, but at the same time, lots of support from locals. So how did you, I'm interested to hear about how you ended up in O'Leary and taking over the hotel. I worked up this way 10 or 12 years ago at a gold mine at White Dam for the contractor and kept in touch with some of the local station owners since and uh, since meeting Amber three years ago and then with my children before that we would just use Bindara station as a bit of a holiday destination and then in September last year we drove past and there was a for sale sign on the front and that's where it all started. Sure so you thought why not let's let's give the pub a crack? Yep yep we thought you would give the hotel a crack we didn't you know we don't have the five or eight million dollars for a a sheep station, so we'll start off on a slightly smaller but probably busier scale. Absolutely. And did you have much hospitality experience? I don't. I guess none of us really do apart from experience on the other side of the counter, roadhouses, yeah, that sort of thing. We know what we like in a hotel or a roadhouse. Uh, we know what kind of food we like and I guess we know that the people, majority of the people around here, are in the same mindset, so didn't really see it as a you know a huge 
transition? We're sticking with our normal pub menu, so all your schnitzels. So we've got beef and chicken schnitzel at the moment, and I'm going to slowly increase on the menu. I've got all the steak burgers, hamburgers, and then I'm hoping for the truck drivers to be aware that even though it says hotel, I'm hoping in the next couple of weeks to start doing like coffee and bacon and egg breakfast for the drivers who are coming through because we're aware that Little Topaz is not open at the moment. So we just, part for me being that I'm truck, I'm an um, old truck driver by trade, I know that quality of food and having somewhere where you can have a clean shower is really important. So part of it for me is you know, looking after locals, absolutely, but making and supporting drivers on their fatigue breaks and making sure they're fed well. Absolutely. And have you had feedback from those truckies coming through and you've spoken to them about what they'd like to see? Yes, I've spoken to a lot of friends in the industry and let them know I'm, I'm open. And in the next couple of weeks, I'll be getting in touch with them going, right, I need you guys to pop in and come through. <laughs> but yeah, there's definitely positive support through it. So I'm just contacting them and promoting it and marketing it through the Facebook. So Never been much of a social media person, so I've learned a lot about Facebook in the last two weeks. Amber, how have you found it, the transition into taking over a pub? For me, (laughs) my life's never been boring, and I was brought up, if you say no, you don't get the opportunity. So when we saw the for sale sign and I did a happy dance and went, this is it, (laughs) Um, here we are. So I, I seem to glide through transitions of all different types quite easily. Perfect. I think you're the person to take on an Outback pub then. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I love feeding people. Yes, um, a lot of friends of mine, even though I have no Italian background, the funniest thing is I feel like this Italian lady, you're too skinny, eat more. I just love feeding people and cooking. That is O'Leary Publicans, Aaron and Amber Crowley speaking with Lily McEwer. It's like they've grabbed that opportunity with two hands, a big learning curve, and all the best to them. How to Relax with Tom Gleeson from Hard Quiz. Holidays. Throwing in a line. Great time. Other fish biting. Hard. <laughs> Cruising on a pushy. Don't forget to pedal. Hard. And generally getting teed off. Don't scream too. Hard. How's the serenity, Tom? I need to go back to work to relax. <laughs> the new season of Hard Quiz. Hard. Starts tonight on ABC TV and always free, always entertaining on ABC iView. It was Selena Green on the Country Hour today, but not for much longer. The one o'clock news is just around the corner, and not long after that, Nikolai Bellharts will be on your radio. Hello, Nikolai. Hello. Happy Wednesday. Yeah, happy Wednesday. Halfway there. What have you got for us today? Uh, A couple of different things we'll be looking at. We've been hearing a few reports of people uh, who are trying to get access to the age pension uh, facing really extensive delays. This kind of ties in with, you remember a little while ago, um, there there seemed to be quite an issue with um, uh, Centrelink services and things like that. The government announced some more funding to try and reduce the the waiting times. But apparently for those who are looking to get onto the aged pension, it's very tricky at the moment and that... Um, understandably, it's pretty worrying if yeah. you're, you know, if you're if you're planning making, you know, financial decisions on when to be able to um, to stop working, and then if that money is not there, it can get tricky. Well, you're in very a bit quickly. of a tight spot for some people, yeah. Yeah, so we're going to find out a bit more about how long the delays are, and you know, there's, there's, when do you actually need to start applying for these things? Uh, what what are the kind of rules around that? And uh, a personal question: How clean is your house? Oh, don't ask. <laughs> don't ask. Don't oh, ask. No. Oh, oh no. no. Uh, we're we're talking about the wonderful world of dust this afternoon as well. Um, 
because uh, it, 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 there's been some more research done into what dust is actually made of. Oh, do I want to know? No, no. you absolutely don't, but I'm going to tell you later anyway. <laughs> Great. And, uh, and uh, you know, is it something that's concerning or is it just, uh, you know, anno- aesthetically annoying? How do you get rid of it? We'll, we'll take a look at that as well. All right. Uh, yeah, let's not talk about my house. Uh, Nikolai, have a great show. Nikolai Bailhartz will be on your radio this afternoon. Thanks for your company. It's news time now. With the ABC Listen app, you can take ABC Radio anywhere. From the car to the cafe... From the couch to the creek. Even places that don't start with a C. Download the free ABC Listen app today. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.